Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 562 with Alex Pang. Hope you're doing well and hanging in there. You're still remote working, likely. Well, Alex has some pro tips on how you can continue getting more done by working less. He's drawing from examples of companies that have managed to shift to four-day work weeks and other situations. So great stuff. You'll learn, one, how working fewer hours can actually greatly increase productivity. Two, small productivity hacks that can save a massive amount of time. And three, when you should and should not multitask. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, expand your episode show notes or description in your podcast app of choice or visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep562. Now here's Alex's story. Alex Pang is the founder of Strategy and Rest, a consultancy devoted to helping companies and individuals harness the power of rest to shorten workdays while staying focused and productive. He's the author of four books and has been featured in publications such as The New York Times, The Guardian, The Financial Times, and The New Yorker. Pang's also an international speaker and has led workshops across the globe on the future of work and how deliberate rest makes creative careers more productive and sustainable. He received his BA and PhD in History of Science from the University of Pennsylvania. Big thanks to Alex for sharing his wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. And big thanks to our sponsor, Acorns. Acorns makes it easy to start automatically saving and investing for your future. You don't need a lot of money or expertise to invest with Acorns. In fact, you can get started with just your spare change. Acorns recommends an expert-built portfolio that fits you and your money goals, then automatically invests your money for you. NerdWallet.com, whom I love on these sorts of matters, gives Acorns a whopping 4.7 stars and says, quote, if you want to make the most of your spare change, there's no better place to do that than Acorns. Head to acorns.com slash awesome or download the acorns app to start saving and investing for your future today and we got a legal disclaimer here it may not be representative of all clients tier one compensation provided compensation provides an incentive to positively promote acorns view important disclosures at acorns.com awesome investing involves risk including the loss of principal please consider your objectives risk tolerance and acorns as fees before investing acorns advisors llc acorns is an sec registered investment advisor brokerage services are provided to clients of acorns by acorn securities llc member at finra slash sipc for more information visit acorns.com now, here's Alex. Alex, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Oh, thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, I'm excited to talk about uh, working less and shorter and, and resting effectively. And so I'll mention right up front that I found it more difficult to rest when there's all this chaotic pandemic news around me. How are you finding rest during this time? I think it's a, it's a challenge for everybody. I do an awful lot of work from home and work remotely anyway. So for me, the biggest disruption is not being able to travel, but someone who mainly writes books for a living kind of shelters in place anyway. So right. I am fortunate to be less disrupted than many people I know. Excellent. Well, well, well I'm glad to hear that, that you're doing well and, and that's working out. I want to hear about your latest book, Shorter. You've written a few. So, so tell me, what made you think that the world needed you to craft this one? <laughs> so Shorter is essentially a sequel to my previous book, Rest, which was about the hidden role of rest in the lives of really creative and prolific people. And when I was promoting that book, I got a lot of questions along the lines of, okay, this all sounds great in theory, but if you're a single mom or a working professional, 
how do you make the case to your boss or your clients that you should rest more? And so I started looking for organizations that had figured out how to do this and fairly quickly stumbled on these companies that had moved to four-day work weeks or six-hour days that not only were recognizing the importance of rest for creative work, for doing good work, but also were changing how they worked, redesigning their workdays in order to make it available to everybody without cutting salaries and without hurting their productivity or their profitability. And so the fact that I was seeing these companies all over the world in a variety of industries, often in industries where overwork is the norm, like software, advertising, call centers, restaurants, made me think these are actually doing something really significant that was worth sharing with the world. Well, that's cool. But I'll tell you, I am. I was a fan of all the line graphs in your book. I, <laughs> I have a sucker for real numbers. So could you share with us a couple of the most striking uh, pieces of research, whether it's uh, a case study or two or more of a, a global kind of uh, survey that, that really uh, makes a compelling case that, in fact, if you're working a shorter amount of time, you can see uh, the same or better results? Well, in organizations that have done this, what I am seeing is that if they are thoughtful about how they redesign their workdays, if they explain it well to clients, if they use technology well, they're able actually to not just maintain the same levels of productivity or profitability, but often increase them. So, and this is so, for example, there's a call center in Glasgow, Scotland. And Glasgow turns out to be like the call center of Europe. There are lots of these companies up there called Pursuit Marketing. It's the, the Scottish accents are just irresistible. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And a couple of years ago, they made the move to a four-day work week. And they found that after they did this, their productivity went up something like 40%, dropped down a little bit and then settle down at about 30% higher than normal. So even though they were working four-day weeks, they were doing more business, generating more revenue for their clients than they had been when they were working five-day weeks. And they, not surprisingly, were also more profitable as a result. And they saw absenteeism and turnover drop really substantially. This is an industry where people do an awful lot of job hopping. You know, you're constantly attracted to the next job by a new set of potential performance bonuses and other incentives. So people generally move quite a bit. But after they moved to a four-day week, attrition dropped to single-digit percentages, which is absolutely unheard of. Annually. Yeah, annually. In call centers. Oh, that is striking. Which is unheard of in the industry. <laughs> So that's one. And, you know, this is also an industry where you measure absolutely everything, right? Right. Average handle time, first call resolution, da 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 Precisely. And so they had really good numbers that illustrated that even in industry where having constant contact with prospective customers, being on the phone a lot, where those kinds of things really matter, where you would not think necessarily that shortening working hours could deliver results. Even in those kinds of industries, 
this turns out to pay off. And this is a story that I saw over and over again, right? Places that, whether it is very top line numbers like just revenues and profitability, or whether it is the results of weekly surveys, either internally with employees or externally with clients, or in terms of things like industry prizes and awards given. When done well, basically all of those numbers over time go up and to the right. That's striking. And so I think you said if you started with a 40% productivity boost, then we hit a 30. If you're re- now, let's clarify a couple things. I guess if you're reducing hours by 20%, five to four days, and you're getting a productivity boost of 30%, you're actually producing more in four days than you are in five. Correct. Do you see folks take like five, eight hour days and turn that into four, 10 hour days? Or is it just, nope, four, eight hour days? Sure. There certainly are companies that convert to four, 10 hour days and including some fairly big ones now offer that option, especially in Japan. So 7-Eleven does this and a number of other large companies. But what I was particularly interested in were companies that we're shortening the total number of hours that people were working. Generally, this means going from 40 hours to 32 or 30. So doing four eight-hour days or five, six hours. In the restaurant industry, because people are often working 12 or 13-hour days, to go to a four-day week means you're going to 48 hours. But still, even there, you're going from like 60 or 70 hours down to something substantially lower. Okay. So really what I was interested in for this book was absolute change in working hours as opposed to just taking 40 hours and moving them around differently on the calendar. Well, yeah, and this is intriguing. So then, well, I've got my own theories, but I want to hear you're, you're the expert. What's your hot take there on the, the mechanisms by which less time yields greater results? Is it they're they're more rejuvenated, so they have more creative ideas to solve the customer caller's problem? Is it fewer silly mistakes that cause... like What are are the sources of, of productivity gains from working less? Very broadly speaking, having more time for recovery means that you have more energy on the job. And that matters whether you're in a creative industry or, you know, you're a maitre d' or you're working in a call center. The second thing is that in knowledge work, in office work, there are estimates that through multitasking, poorly run meetings, interruptions, we lose an average of about two hours a day of productive time. And so if you can eliminate that stuff and get that time back, you go a long way to being able to do five days worth of work in four days. And what the companies that I've studied do, essentially, is figure out ways to get those two hours back. So the second part, the sort of redesigning your workday to use your time more effectively, gives you the fundamental ability to fit five days worth of work into four. And then I think having the extra time to cultivate other hobbies, to rest and relax, to deal with life admin, that gives you an additional boost that accounts for that increase in productivity or creativity on top of the 20% that you need to make up for working fewer hours. Okay. Well, so then I'd love to dig into some of the the how-to here, if even for individuals or teams, like um, I'm wondering not all of us will have the ability to persuade the uh, top decision maker at the organization that this is what we want to do. 
But uh, I'm sure there's some, some leeway to be done here and there, particularly when more people are working from home right now. So how do we go make it happen? So the first thing that almost everybody does is dramatically shorten meetings, eliminate the standing Monday morning, hour-long meeting, take the traditional meetings and make them half as long or less. Our calendar programs kind of default to running meetings for an hour, which means that people tend to drift in, but things start a little bit late, you check your email, you chat a little bit, then you do some business, and then maybe you, know, you pad out the time at the end by talking about what you did on the weekend, etc. By making meetings much sharper, more pointed, often smaller, having agendas and decisions that need to be made, and then focusing on those and then getting out of there, you can save an organization an amazing amount of time. The next thing is getting technology distractions under control. So implementing norms where you have email checks at particular times of day, you're more thoughtful about how you use tools like Slack and other messaging programs can go a long way to eliminating the kind of everyday state of what Microsoft executive Linda Stone called continuous partial attention. That state where you're kind of focused on one thing, but you've also got an eye on your inbox and you kind of toggle between different activities or, or, or different things that capture your attention. That feels like a very productive way to work, but every study indicates that actually it's not. Yeah, I might just sort of linger there for a moment. I think that's critical. It feels productive, so we do it, and, and it feels good to do it. But in fact, if you actually took a look at your, your output, your outcomes generated, it's lower. And, and, and I think that's fascinating stuff. Could, do you have some insight into like the biochemistry? Like I've heard that we get a little bit of a dopamine hit in terms of, hey, there was an email and now it's gone. That's done. I've done something. It might be tiny, but it's done. Oh, and I did a lot of tiny things. Therefore, I did a lot or I feel like I did a lot. But really, it's like, hey, those 20 inconsequential emails versus that one meaty you know, piece of thought that will generate thousands of dollars, <laughs> is they're not at all equal in terms of their value. No, they're not. Definitely not. And it is certainly the case that as creatures who often seek novelty, and especially those of us who are in creative industries, we are a little more likely to like new stuff, to like stimulation mm -hmm. than sometimes people who are, who are happy in other kinds of businesses. We have something of a bias toward this. But it's also the case that there is a real difference between the kind, in productive terms, between the kind of sort of multitasking where you're juggling several different things that all aim at the same endpoint. So when you're giving a talk, for example, you know, you're managing your slides, you've got the points you're trying to make, you're reading the room, you're interacting with people. There's actually an awful lot of different cognitive strains that are happening at once. But because all of them go to making a good performance, right? Helping an audience understand some new thing, helping them solve a problem, it doesn't feel like the kind of cognitive overload that trying to simultaneously be on a conference call and look at a spreadsheet about an unrelated thing incurs. The problem is that through a combination of organizational habit, through the fact that 
for most of human history, we haven't had a lot of opportunity to do that second sort of multitasking, to look at multiple screens at once. We're not yet very well tuned to recognizing the difference between that really productive, engaging kind of multitasking that involves multiple channels that all build to the same goal and this other kind that is that feels productive but which is actually a lot harder for us to manage and gives us the feeling of engagement and the feeling of productivity without very much productivity well that is just a heck of a distinction because i'm thinking about times in which i've sort of been in charge of an event like mm-hmm. I, I'm pulled in very many directions, right? Kind of all at once. So that the food is here, and the the volunteers are there, and, uh, and the attendees are are there, and ooh, here's an unexpected issue. <laughs> and so, it for me, it's when I'm properly prepared, uh, it's exhilarating as opposed to right. anxiety provoking. <laughs> and it's but it's all geared towards hey, making a great event, a great experience for the people who are mm-hmm. present, and that works. But versus it might be feel give a similar sensation if i'm doing five completely different things but rapidly switching between them but they don't actually synergistically help at each other it's right. just sort of like oh i'm cleaning my mac files in one place and my emails in another place and and my voicemails in another place and maybe i'm just switching between all three because that can happen but they're not actually helping each other at all. I'm not learning one from one source. So that's that's a really powerful distinction, I think. Thank you. And actually, companies that move to four-day weeks are pretty explicit about recognizing that distinction. And one of the most important ways in which they express it is by redesigning their workday so that they carve out and set aside times for what Cal Newport calls deep work, right? Mm. It's a couple hours of the day usually in the late morning, when you can be, you have permission to be a little antisocial, to not answer the phone. You're expected not to ask people those one quick question that turns into a 10-minute conversation, but rather everyone has permission to focus on their most important sort of most challenging tasks. And Mm -hmm. so by creating that time and creating it for everybody, you make it easier for people to get into that state of concentration, that flow state, and to get substantial stuff done. I think that's another really important thing that I see these companies doing. And then the fourth and final one is using technology to augment people's abilities, right? You essentially- I am a cyborg, if you will. Yeah. You automate <laughs> kind of ordinary stuff, sort of less less significant, less value-added tasks, but you use technology to augment people's ability to do really significant, significant creative tasks. We have an example of that. So I can think of all sorts of ways to automate. We had uh, Wade Foster from Zapier on the show earlier, which is cool. I'm a big fan of, of outsourcing, whether it's to a personal assistant service or to you know some folks in, in developing countries. Right where there's some, the dollar can, can go farther and provide a good living wage with, with fewer total dollars. But tell me about using technology to do the big hard stuff. Sure. And there are plenty of these companies who do have, you know, relationships with virtual assistants in, you know, the Philippines or Malaysia or such. But a good example is an accounting company called Farnell Clark. 
based in the UK. Farnell Clark does cloud-based accounting, which and awful lot of the accounting industry is still you know, working on pen and paper or on personal computers using you know software loaded up onto people's machines. Farnell Clark's specialty for years had been using cloud-based services like, or I think Zero is one of them. There are a couple others that own most of this market. And moving clients onto those systems to make basic things like quarterly reporting, tax filing, that sort of stuff easier. What they have also realized once they moved to a four-day week was that automating all that stuff freed up a whole bunch of time for the accountants that they could now spend on stuff like financial consulting or providing financial services, keeping in touch with clients, often through Skype and Zoom and the other tools with which we have all become intimately familiar in mm -hmm. the last few weeks. And between those two things and then also becoming familiar with other kinds of financial planning tools or research tools, making it possible for the company to go from just mainly doing tax preparation kinds of stuff, ordinary bookkeeping, to more labor-intensive or more creatively-intensive kinds of financial advisory work. And then there are other versions of this that you see with, let's say, restaurants or garages, where people are using fairly ordinary tools, sometimes in far more labor-intensive kinds of ways. But I think that the Farnell-Clark example is a nice illustration of how cloud-based tools can be used in this manner. That's really cool the, to see sort of like the the virtuous cycle effect there in terms of, hey, now that we've freed up some time, we've got, we could put some time into something that yields even more cool benefits. Mm -hmm. So that's, uh, that's really cool. I'm curious when folks are saying, Alex, this is awesome. Yes, we're going to go forth and do this. What are some common you know, mistakes or hiccups that the folks run into that you could give a watch out, a heads up to? Right. I think that the first thing is that I've never encountered a company that said, we spent too much time planning this. We spent too much time thinking wow. about what could go wrong, doing you know, sort of thinking through contingencies, doing scenarios. I think that the more you're able to plan in advance, the better. And partly because you do actually come up with problems that you might not foresee, but also because giving everybody an opportunity to think this through is really important in building confidence that they can actually make it work. Uh -huh. I think another thing that has killed off experiments in a couple places was letting everybody choose their own day versus uh. deciding everybody's going to take these days off. Right. So the office is going to be closed on Fridays, or half the workforce is on from Monday to Thursday. The other half is Tuesday to Friday if the office needs to stay open five days a week. So I think that recognizing that you have to design with your own culture in mind, and you want to make sure that you don't disrupt that. And then finally, the other thing is that it's really important to make the transition something that the employees themselves drive, right? Every company has a leader at the top who, for various reasons, decides this is an experiment worth trying and a risk worth taking. But the actual implementation is done by 
employees themselves. And they have to be able to conduct, to experiment with different ways of working, to try things out, to prototype, to rapidly iterate, and to also be sure that if this works out, that they are going to keep the kind of benefits of the time saved by learning how to be more productive and how to use technology better. The only other places where this experiment falls apart is where there's a sense that you know we're going to do all this stuff, but ultimately, and the company is going to get 20% more work out of us, but we're going to go back to a traditional schedule. So mm-hmm. I think that being very clear that everybody is going to benefit from these changes is a really important thing to establish and to honor from the outset. Okay. Well, tell me, Alex, anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? Yeah. I think that the other critical thing is that everybody worries about how clients will react. And I was amazed to hear exactly one story of a prospective client who objected to a company moving to a four-day week. Clients, it turns out, are incredibly supportive of this, partly because they have the same kinds of problems that companies moving to four-day weeks do with work-life balance, with burnout, with recruitment and retention and sustainability. So I think that involving clients early on, making clear to them that this is what you're trying to do, that you're still available under emergencies, All of that is important, but you'll also find, sometimes contrary to your initial expectations or worries, that clients can be some of your biggest allies. Okay. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? I often remember a line from Bertrand Russell from his essay about the uses of idleness, where he talks about how we could by now have a four-hour workday. And he says that modern technology offers the prospect of convenience and ease for all, or a future that offers overwork for a few and idleness for many. And it feels to me like that he was really onto something there, that in a sense we have, for various reasons, chosen the second future, but it's not too late to choose the first one. And how about a favorite book? Probably the book that has affected or changed my life more than any other in the last 10 years has been Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's book, Flow, mm-hmm. which is the classic study of flow states, what they are, why they're important, and why they not only make us happy, but are essential for living a good life. And I think that you know, for those of us who really enjoy our work, who love nothing more than getting lost in an interesting problem. Csikszentmihalyi offers a great key for understanding what it is that is so rewarding about interesting problems, about really good work, and a foundation for thinking about how we can build on that to make our lives better. Not just to be more productive, not just to be more successful, but to become better people and to have better, more sustainable lives. Well said. And I like that you pronounce his name perfectly. Hey. (laughs) (laughs) I had to look that up and practice it a few times. Yeah. Because I I name drop him as well. It's an excellent book. And how about a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job? 
Scrivener. It's a kind of supercharged word processor that also has a bunch of organizational and kind of outlining tools. I've written three books using Scrivener, and without it, I probably would have written like one and a half. It is for writers what something like in a order of Lightroom is for photographers. It's not simple, but it's got definitely a learning curve. But once you figure it out, you can't live without it. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? So if you want to learn more, my company website is www.strategy.rest. Rest is now a top-level domain, very happily for me. And then on Instagram, on Twitter, and pretty much everything else, I am AskPang, A-S-K-P-A-N-G. So those are the best places to find me. And of course, the books are available in fine bookstores, virtual, and one day, one hopes again, physical, everywhere. Beautiful. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? It is possible to rethink and redesign everything about how we work. And that even starting with small things like changing how you run meetings can have very big impacts over the long run. It can start teaching you how to improve things that you've kind of put up with for years that everyone complains about, but the order of, but no one has figured out how to change. These things actually turn out to be changeable. They turn out to be fixable. And when we take a kind of more experimental, more skeptical approach to how we work, when we ask the question, why is it this way? Can it be different? And what can we do to figure out how to improve it? Turns out you can do dramatic things that pay off both for your company and for yourself. Well, Alex, thank you. This has been a ton of fun. I wish you lots of luck in all the ways that uh, you're working shorter. <laughs> oh, thanks very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I really loved Alex's quick takes on how you can free up a ton of that time in terms of dramatically shorten the meetings and, and don't just succumb to the default one hour setting or half hour, whatever it is in your calendar, but actually think, hmm, how much time should this in fact take and then schedule accordingly and, and try not to be nudged by the defaults, even though we are, it's that priming effect. It's, it's up in there. Maybe close your eyes and think about just how much time it should take before you uh, actually uh, try to put it in a calendar slot. As well as, again, we heard from Lizette, those boundaries. When you're checking the news, you're checking the email, you're checking the Slack. If you can figure out what are the times I'm going to bundle those such that it gets done at those particular intervals and not all the time slowing things down. So again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F562. If you haven't already, I hope you'll punch subscribe to catch our next guest, Ozan Barul. He is indeed a legit rocket scientist. He's going to share some pro tips on how to think like one. So I hope to catch you there and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. 
Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.